Welcome to Life to the Full, a message to Christians. This is a podcast about the abundant life that God promises in Scripture. We want to inspire those who are frustrated with themselves and their communities to live a transformed life that will impact the world. Our primary purpose is to be a platform that will impact the world through conversation. We want to invite others to connect and unite in curiosity, vulnerability, and responsibility. A transformed life is about growth, learning, and evolving. A transformed life leads to transformed communities, and transformed communities impact the world. One conversation at a time. Welcome to A Life to the Full podcast, a message to Christians. I am one of two co-host jimmy james jumping james he's a radical watch out uh not really welcome to new friends old friends anyone who's stumbled upon our channel or someone who's come here on purpose welcome to our series uh journey into scripture uh we are treating the bible as if we are diving into it we're getting to explore we're getting to experience it like it's an actually unexplored country or maybe unexplored to us. And we're getting into it. We're exploring, we're discovering, and we're taking three relatively short journeys in the scripture. Although the first one has taken us, I think at this point, almost a month. Uh, and we're journeying into three different main types of literature that you find in the Bible. We're journeying into narrative, which are the stories, poetry, uh, which are poems, and we're going to be journeying into something called prose discourse, which is kind of more like the letters of Paul, right? Where it's like a logical flow, logical argument. So we are wrapping up our narrative. We're using Jonah as our vehicle. And if you've been tracking along with us, we just finished out Jonah. So we, we kind of did the whole overview of Jonah. Uh, we finished that last week. We got to the beginning of the chapter, to the end of the chapter, and we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. We looked at some of the literary design. We looked at some patterns. We looked at things that we could observe just from the way the text was constructed. Stuff that we might not notice on a first reading or a second reading, but something that after a third, fourth, or fifth uh, would start to jump out of us and um, would become more and more apparent. So this part of the talk, this is always my favorite. Now, I always do get a little bit afraid that, that I'm going to be like, I'm going to come across like a crazy person behind a shower curtain and I have a desk and I have all these different like clues and conspiracy, conspiracy theories up on the wall. And uh, it's going to be really hard to follow. I hope it's not going to be, I worked really hard to kind of make this nice and bite size, nice and even Stevens. What we're going to be talking about today is that how the Bible is the original hyperlinked text. Okay. The Bible is in a conversation with itself um, at different points. Um, all over scripture. Um, it's inviting you into that conversation. Um, so we're going to be talking about that today. Um, we're going to be looking at what's the lens that the people who wrote this stuff possibly were even operating from and what we can learn from that lens or that hermeneutic. Uh, and we're going to be looking at a concept called biblical theology, which is the whole Bible approach to scripture. It's understanding the parts of the Bible by understanding the whole. So we're going to be looking at this to see if it can inform our reading of Jonah. Now, our goal is just to get a, a little bit of a taste of how to do this, a little bit of an inkling. 
Um, this is not going to be exhaustive. Um, it's actually almost impossible to be exhaustive when we get to this level of, you know, journeying into scripture. Uh, we're going to be looking at the surface of the surface level of this, but I think we're still going to be able to find out a lot of great things in this, uh, in this discussion. So let's get into it. So how is the Bible like the original hyperlinked text? So if you don't know what a hyperlink is, uh, maybe you know, you're still getting new to this internet stuff, this interweb, you don't really understand it. Uh, hyperlinks are you know, like a page like Wikipedia, right? It's like the online encyclopedia. There are all these words, right, describing something. And then some of those words are blue. And what those blue words do is they'll link you to other articles about, about that thing. So you could be looking at, let's say, an article on United States of America, maybe get to some presidents, you get some names of presidents, all those presidents names will be hyperlinked, right? The people who are important in their life, the important events in their life, maybe the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, World War One, World War Two, the Vietnam War, uh, different presidential elections, different things in our history, they will all be hyperlinked to different articles, right? So that's commonly how the Bible is described. I by many scholars when you know it comes to the way the Bible seems to be organized. Although I really like that analogy, um, you know, because I think it's I think it's true. The Bible is in a, in a very real literal sense, it's having a conversation with itself and it's inviting you into this conversation. Now, this might seem self-explanatory at first, like of course the Bible has to do with every other part of the Bible, but it's not as clear cut as I think most people imagine when they first hear that. When you first hear, oh yeah, the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, they you know they have something to do with each other. The New Testament largely came out of the Old Testament. I think most any, anybody would agree with that statement, but it means something a little bit more as, as we'll see. And so while I love the analogy of a hyperlinked text, and it's true, the Bible is like a hyperlinked hyperlink text. I mean, your Bible might not come with any glowing hyperlinks, um, but you know, if you're on a digital Bible or electronic Bible, maybe there are some stuff. But to me, the Bible always seems to behave more like a maze or a labyrinth rather than a Wikipedia page. It's full of twists and turns. And at times it can be quite easy to take a wrong turn and be like, wait, where, where am I? Where am I going? Especially when you really start diving into it. Um, a lot of times the Bible can, can leave us a little bit confused. I know when I was first uh, getting into, you know, reading big sections of the Bible at a time uh, when I started getting away from, you know, taking the one little verse and then analyzing that to death and then trying to find a practical application. When I started more on this whole Bible approach, reading large chunks of scripture at a time, um, you know, especially in the New Testament, I would find the writers of the New Testament, you know, using scriptures from the Old Testament in various ways. And I would go to, you know, those places in the Old Testament and it didn't seem to like work out. You know, I was coming from a certain lens of like, you know, scripture being used in a certain type of context. So maybe you can even call it like a historical gra grammatical context. Like there are some words on a page, uh, the original languages, uh, were written down to communicate a certain thing in a particular historical setting uh, for a particular historical point in time. And I go in and I read it and I was just, I was lost. 
I remember even thinking, did, did Peter or James, did John just misquote scripture? Uh, and I know some people were like, what, how could you say that? But I was learning to look at my Bible uh, with better eyes to ask some better questions, you know? And I remember questioning that. I was like, why, why are the apostles and the writers of the New Testament use scripture in a way that seems to violate a lot of the laws and ways that I've been taught to use scripture? Like I was taught to always search out a text context, to look at the text and understand its context. And you can't really use a scripture appropriately unless you understand its context. And the authors of the Bible seem to take scriptures. Sometimes they would change wording. Sometimes they'd take two scriptures and smash them together and make something else. Sometimes they would, they would take a scripture that was clearly uh, talking about someone else, some other character, someone specific in a moment of time, like Hezekiah or, you know, David or one of the kings of Israel or some, you know, important person. And they seem that, you know, especially in the New Testament, they would switch that around. They would seem to make that about Jesus. And uh, the answer that I was given was, well, you see, yes, we're aware of this. We understand this. Don't panic. Everyone try not to panic. And the answer that I was given was that, well, they were writing inspired texts. They were writing scripture, right? Divinely inspired. So they were able to do things with the text that I am mere mortal and the rest of us were no longer allowed to do. So if God commissioned us to ever write more scripture, we would be able to do creative things with the text like they were doing. Um, now, what this does is it sets up, you know, scripture to contradict each other. So sometimes there'll be inherent contradictions in the text. And, you know, before you throw up your hands and you're like, that can't possibly be, I'm going to show you one in a minute. Um, but when we're looking at it from a certain point of view, right, like scripture is the inerrant word of God. It never changes. God never changes. Um, this is This is truth laid out for us so that we can follow it. You can feel like, you know, this woman in the maze, I kind of have a picture up for those of you who are following in the podcast. Today's theme is mazes and labyrinth, labyrinths as we get into everything. Um, so this is kind of a classic example in Proverbs 26, four and five. So you don't really have to go far in scripture to find this one. It says, do not answer fools according to their folly or you will be like a fool yourself. So if you have some foolish people in your life, Maybe you're the fool, that, right? I'm sure if Patty was here, she would say, I'm the foolish one. Everything's a joke. Anyway, do not answer fools according to their folly or you will be a fool yourself. So it seems pretty clear, pretty cut and dry. If someone's ask, acting foolishly around you, just, just ignore them. Don't even, don't even try and confront them. Don't even try and deal with them. Because if you do, you're going to stoop down to their level and you're going to be a fool yourself. But then you go to the next verse and you get this gem, answer fools according to their folly or they will be wise in their own eyes. And at that point, you're like, what, what, do, you, what do you want me to do? <laughs> am I supposed to ignore them or am I supposed to deal with them? Because in verse four, I was supposed to ignore them, but one verse over, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to answer them, right? I'm, and I'm, in case the Bible was like, you know, like in case you missed it, let me use the same exact words right? According to their folly, answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. And this is kind of a classic example of how the text at times can seem to contradict itself, especially when you take the view of the inerrancy of scripture. Uh, every, you know, this is, this is black and white stuff. This is God's message to humanity. Um, 
you know, and, and this is the text. We just need to obey the text. Stuff like this can be very confusing. Now, there's lots of mental gymnastics that you can do. There's a lot of things that you can kind of like, you can tease out and you can like, you can kind of turn yourself into knots to explain how, no, this actually doesn't contradict this, this, what the author was trying to do was this. And this is kind of just a classic example because it's, it's right there, it kind of smacks you right in your face. Uh, you can't get around it. Um, but another example, this was something that was challenging for me uh, when I was in high school and college was how the God of the Old Testament on a surface level seemed bloodthirsty and just full of rage and just wanted to smite enemies and do all types of crazy stuff where the God of the New Testament seemed like loving, more hippie-ish, more like peace and love and harmony. And it, it didn't seem to fit together for me. I didn't understand how to make those two, to reconcile those two in my mind. Because I was still operating from a, a lens of historical context. Nothing wrong with that. Historical context is great. But I was acting from a certain lens where, you know, I didn't understand, you know, if all this is inspired, if all this is from God, how could, how could there be such a difference, you know? And again, the answers that the priests and the teachers and, uh, you know, my friends would give me never really satisfied me, you know, like never really seemed to explain away those contradictions for me. It's just like, I understand what you're saying, but it seems like, you know, you're kind of twisting yourself into knots there. Um, this seems a little bit too complicated. It seems like, you know, on the face of it, it seems like things are contradicting. Um, but what if the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, even Jesus himself, had a different approach to interpreting a scripture than most modern Christians? And, you know, if they did, because they didn't, see, didn't seem to have a problem with this, you know, you even read through Paul, like, you know, as, as we'll eventually get to, in our, our last little mini journey that we're going to take, uh, you know, Paul does very, very creative things in scripture. Uh, Peter Enns likes to say that, you know, even though Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, he probably couldn't get a job teaching at a modern seminary. His, even his own writings, because of his approach to scripture, was way too flexible and creative, at least in you know, letters that we have. So, Looking at this, and this is something that, you know, modern scholars have kind of started to go into, uh, the Bible Project and Bema and all, Pete, Peter Enns' podcast, um, the Bible for Normal People, they all do a great job. We've done some of that conversation work here in our own podcast and our own channel of trying to, you know, what does that, what does that mean for the, you know, regular Christian? How does that lead to a life to the fold, trying to look at things this way? So, this approach is called like a biblical theology approach or a whole approach uh, to scripture or the metaphor I'm using today is getting above the maze. So when you're in the middle of the maze, it can be very, very difficult to figure out where to go. There's lots of twists and turns and, you know, false starts and you think you, think you know where you're going and then, you know, you have to try and re retrace your steps and then like, you know, you, you can get lost. Uh, I get lost a lot in case you guys don't know that um, unless I'm walking in the woods and then I seem to but every now and then I get lost then too. Um, but it attempts to understand the parts and the light of the whole. So it doesn't just look like look at individual scriptures or individual books. It looks at the whole thing, right? So you really need to be able to have like the whole Bible in your head, uh, maybe not memorized, but at least the general outlines to 
be able to start doing some of this stuff. And then what at first appeared to be, you know, contradictions begins to take more of the shape of a conversation. You know, you can literally see how the Bible is literally talking to itself over the ages. And at times it's presenting different or alternative points of view. You know, it's questioning the goodness of God. It's questioning the rightness of God. It's questioning, you know, the promises that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You know, it's, it's questioning things. Um, it's, you know, even just look at the book of Job as a perfect example of one big long conversation, you know, which is an amazing book. Um, and then, you know, this type of inter interpreting the Bible, right, this whole Bible approach is what we're going to try and, and be doing today. We're going to be looking at the book of Jonah and we're going to be trying to figure out, you know, is this something that we can do today? Can we look at the whole Bible and kind of with the whole Bible in our heads, uh, use that to gain meaning from, does that actually change the meaning of the text from like what we get from a surface reading to a, to a deeper reading? Um, so we're gonna be using again, the book of Jonah to do this and we're gonna be getting into it. So when we last left Jonah, right? By the end of the story, um, you know, and honestly, you know, we could go through the book of Jonah line by line. This is why whoever wrote the book of Jonah is a literary genius. Um, you know, I've, I've been doing this with the book of Jonah now for, you know, over a year or so, like really getting into it and really like trying to follow all the breadcrumbs. And I feel like I'm just getting to a point now where like, you know, I'm relatively comfortable with things that are going on in the book of Jonah. Um, you know, people who have been doing this a lot longer than me, you know, with not just the book of Jonah, but in the entire Bible, they're like, you know, man, once you start, once you feel like you, you've got it and you've hit bottom and you understand all the connections, all the way the Bible is trying to talk to itself and invite you into that conversation, you always find another layer. There's always something deeper. And, you know, through that, the Bible actually really does speak into every generation. It speaks into every culture because it's literally having a conversation that it's inviting you to be a part of. Um, so we're just gonna be looking at the surface of the surface. We're not really gonna be going that deep, uh, but you know, we follow the book of Jonah all the way through. Uh, the, the two big things that happen at the end, you know, we find out one, the reason why Jonah ran, right? And we find out that Jonah wants to die. Those are the, that's kind of like where the story ends. And this will send out us out to two foundational stories for the Old Testament, one near the beginning of Israel becoming a people group, and one near the end of the history of them being an independent state, having their own sovereignty, their own country. So these are like, it's going to lead us out to two foundational stories. <clears throat> so if you kind of zoom in, this is a, a picture of a maze that we had before. You see a woman on the bridge. She's kind of like a little bit up above the maze, right? Uh, that's kind of like what we did uh, the prior weeks. We looked at, you know, the internal structure of the book of Jonah. Although we did go out a little bit, you know, in the beginning where it kind of showed us the address where we should be looking in history, uh, why Babylon maybe is important. Um, this is kind of like a zoomed in picture. And then, you know, next kind of like when you zoom out, you see, okay, there are, there are other bridges. There are other important things in this maze that we should be paying attention to. And the first one, right, is when we find out why 
Jonah ran. And let's read that together. Let me get my handy dandy NIV. When we find out that Jonah ran, right? But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. In chapter four, verse one, he prayed to the Lord, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, and you know, then he goes on and says, now oh Lord, take my life. Uh, so the first part of, of that whole thing of why Jonah was mad right before he asked to die you know that's something that should it should be echoing in your brain um as you start reading through scripture and that should take you to moses that's the first place where you know god god describes his own character you know very similar to this you know um gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love or loving kindness notoriously hard word to translate anyway we said we weren't going to get into that stuff uh, and the second thing is pray that he might die. And you have to think, where, where, where have I heard that before? Praying that he might die. And that should make you think of Elijah. So these two things that where the Bible is kind of having a conversation with itself, they're going to be revolving around Moses and Elijah. Uh, so there's our Moses and there, there's our Elijah kind of sending it back. Um, now, of course, if you're going to become a good biblical theologian or an amateur one like myself, you have to be able to quickly summarize the entire biblical story from creation to Moses. So that really the whole thing, like, right, that's what you want to kind of do. But we're going to take it first from creation to Moses, and we're going to do that real quick. All right. So the first one, obviously, you know, begins with the creation. We have Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, 4. They're banished from the garden, Right. Uh, but, you know, they not haven't necessarily left Eden. They just left the garden, east of the garden, right? And they keep going east of Eden. They have two children, Cain and Abel. Uh, it's unclear whether they were born inside the garden, outside the garden. Probably really doesn't matter for this discussion. So anyway, Adam and Eve, they're created to be image bearers of God. It, it's as if God created a cosmic temple when he was creating uh, the universe and ordering the universe in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, creates man and woman to kind of tend that garden, almost like a priestly role in that sacred space of the universe, really, the cosmic temple, uh, heaven and earth. And then everything goes horribly wrong. Instead of letting God inform uh, how they're going to reign and rule, they kind of go their own way. Um, they look to themselves for wisdom, and everything goes horribly wrong. And um, then we have Cain and Abel. Course of time, Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to the Lord, it's assumed they brought the sacrifices right to the gate of the garden. You know, we don't necessarily know why, but we know that Abel's sacrifice God liked. Cain's, he did not, right? And, you know, things start getting worse. God speaks to Cain, warns Cain, uh, but in the end, Cain murders his brother Abel, right? It says he became hot with anger when Abel's sacrifice was accepted and not his uh, sins compared to this crouching animal. Cain kills his brother, and then his brother's blood cries out to God. God punishes Cain, but Cain pleads with God, saying his punishment is too much. God relents and puts a mark on Cain and promises to protect him, right? So things seem to be getting worse and worse from the initial rebellion with Adam and Eve to their sons. Cain goes off and he builds a city. It's presumed that he's building what would become Babylon, 
right? He goes off and he builds a city. It's a city that, you know, where people are oppressed, bad things are happening. Uh, we know this because we follow Cain's line after seven generations, we get Lamech who say, said that if Cain is avenged seven times, he's, he's avenged 77 times, uh, very bad dude. Uh, the violence and outcry of blood has gotten worse and worse, right? Cain City has become a city of blood whose outcry will go up before God, just like his brothers, Abel. Then we have the end of all flesh has come upon me. We have the Noah story, right? We have the countdown to the flood, 120 years. And you know, God basically regrets that he, that he made people. He's like, the end of all flesh is coming up before me. But Noah finds favor. We have the generation of the flood, right? Noah is like this chosen one who is going to, you know, redeem the world or save the, the world through his survival. You know, he's rescued through the waters. God relents, but humanity goes on to make another city of blood or the Tower of Babel. So this is kind of the great story that we have now. And this is the pattern that ends up repeating itself again and again. We have some type of Eden set up. We have some type of ideal, right? There's some type of violence or rebellion. And then there's a chosen one who kind of rescues us, rescues humanity, either through an act of intercession or some type of covenantal agreement. So this is kind of just this pattern that just seems to repeat itself again and again and again. Whenever you have humans, you have every human system, you know, on their own best wisdom, on their own best intentions, everything seems to go horribly wrong. Although it's set up as if, you know, this is full of possibility. And if they would just listen to God and follow him, then everything would be great. Um, it doesn't ever seem to work out like that. And there needs to be someone who kind of intervenes and, you know, helps uh, change that, helps them turn, make a turnaround, right? And then as we'll see, this kind of repeats itself again and again and again, right? We have Noah, we have Abraham, we have Joseph, right? And then we have Moses, right? And that brings us to the most important scripture in the Hebrew Bible, which was alluded to, which was alluded to before by Jonah. This is why Jonah is upset. If you know, if you kind of just hit that, if those words kind of hit you when Jonah said that and you were confused or you didn't really think much of it, you're completely missing the point. When those words come out of Jonah's mouth, you are supposed to pay attention. And the reason you're supposed to be paying attention is because the Bible pays attention to this. It's the most quoted eternal quotation in the entire Old Testament is this verse that we're about to get to. So just to give a little backstory, you have the mountain of God or Mount Sinai. This is after, you know, God delivered them from Egypt. You have this high place. You have the burning bush, right? It's on fire. The mountain's on fire. Mountains are covered in a thick cloud, right? And then God, God invites the people to go up into the mountain to prepare themselves. He's going to speak to them and he's going to make his covenant with them. They're totally freaked out by this. They're very, very scared. So they send Moses instead of them going. So Moses goes up all by himself and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And, you know, again, you should, if you know uh, the flood story, when you hear 40 days and 40 nights, that should be something that clues you in. Something is happening here that, you know, I should be paying attention to. I remember that from the Noah story. Um, and they don't know where Moses went. They're worried, concerned, 
And so they do something horrible. They build the golden calf, you know, and they have a big party. Um, they, they break this covenant, covenantal relationship with God. And then God is understandably very, very upset. And, you know, he's, he's ready to basically destroy all the people. So it's just such an interesting story. I feel like so many people don't even like, aren't even aware of the story. It's not even on their radar about how big, big of a deal this is. So God goes through all this work to redeem these people. He's called out from the nations, right? His new nation, Israel, uh, after going through the Red Sea or the Reed Sea up to the foot of Mount Sinai, this covenantal relationship is taking place uh, because they've, they've now broken this covenant. Um, God wants to destroy them. God says to Moses, leave me alone, give me rest, and I'm going to destroy all these people, and I'm going to start over from you. And then Moses basically intercedes by offering himself, right? He, he prays for the people. He basically appeals to God's pride. He's like, well, what will people think? What will people think if, you know, you lead these people out into the desert only to destroy and destroy them? What, what will they think? And, you know, and, and Moses kind of appeals to God's pride and then he offers himself. And he's like, if that, you know, if that's not enough, take me, uh, but, you know, blot my name out from the book of life, but, you know, don't abandon your people. And this seems to change God's mind. God's mind is changed. And he decides that he's not going to destroy these people. And then there's this whole like thing where, you know, God is like, I'm not going to destroy them, but I'm not going to go with you either. I'm going to send an angel, some type of other heavenly being. And Moses is like, no, you can't do that. You have to come with us. And he's, you know, he kind of like has this dialogue with God, this conversation where God basically changes his mind. And, you know, because of all this, God kind of rewards Moses. He said, you know, He's like, you know, ask me for whatever you want. Moses is like, I want to see your face. God's like, you can't. No one can see my face and live, uh, but you can see my back. It's a very interesting story. Um, you, I'm going to allow you to see my back, you know? And when that happens, you know, so there's basically like a little cleft in the rock, a little shelter in the rock, a little, almost like a cave where Moses goes and he, you know, he takes shelter in, God covers it with his hand, passes by, passes by Moses. And then when he passes by, he takes his hand away and then Moses can see God's back. And then he hears this in Exodus 34 verses six through seven. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So Moses hears this, right? He hears basically what people have called to be God's character. He announces who he is. And this scripture throughout the rest of the Old Testament is going to be like questioned going to be talked about and here in the book of jonah this is something that is making jonah very very mad and it's making him so mad that he disobeyed uh, what god wanted him to do right so 
there really are four main intercessors, right? There's Noah, there's the Noahic covenant, there's Abraham, there's the Abrahamic covenant, uh, there's Moses, the Mosaic covenant, uh, and then Elijah, you know, which we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, he's like near the end of the monarchy. And, you know, even though God made his covenant with David, there's a sense that the Davidic covenant is going to continue, right? And as Christians, we believe the Davidic covenant continues to Jesus, right? To Jesus and Jesus ushers in something new. Uh, but Elijah is kind of ushering in the continuation of that covenant into the future. He comes near the end of the story for the nation of Israel. So you have all of these intercessors here, kind of made a handy little chart uh, for you guys to, you know, go study on your home alone or at home alone, or, you know, if you're following along with us with the, um, yeah, on the YouTube channel, the YouTube channel. Do the kids call it the YouTube channel or is it just the YouTube channel? I don't know, but I'm going to go with the YouTube channel because I think it sounds kind of cool. So we see this pattern here repeating itself again and again. There's an Eden setup. There's a violence or rebellion, chosen one who, who rescues the people through the act of intercession or a covenant. We have Cain. Cain led to the generation of the flood, right? And we have Noah, right? And he kind of rescued humanity through the ark. And then after he gets out of the ark, the first thing he does is he offers sacrifices. And when God smells the pleasing sacrifices, you know God loves him a good barbecue, right? He, you know, says, you know, even though you guys are wicked and every inclination of your heart is wicked, I'm never going to destroy you ever again. And that's a covenant that he made, not with just the people of Israel. There were no people of Israel yet, right? He made it with the entire world, right? And then we have Babylon, Nineveh, Sodom, where we have Abraham. Abraham goes and he rescues, he tries to intercede through God through prayer, right, for his nephew Lot. And God ends up sending those two angels to take Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then, you know, eventually Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's descent into Egypt, right? Israel's descent into slavery. Uh, they would be rescued by Moses, right? And Moses, you know, offers prayers and sacrifices. Uh, basically, he was offering himself and his prayer was kind of his reasoning with God. Uh, so there's always seems to be some type of call of repentance, um, you know, and it's the trajectory seems to be, it's not just dealing with the Israel story. It's not just there for Israel. There's something fundamentally broken about the world that God is trying to bring back together. Like there's a reason that there's Genesis 1 through 11, right? This isn't just the foundational, at least the Bible claims, right? And if you're a Christian, you you believe this that the Bible claims that these foundational stories are not just foundational to the story of Israel. They're foundational to the story of the world. Something went horribly wrong. And this is the Bible's take on what happened. And through all these covenants and through all of these acts of intercession, through all of these, you know, people who were interceding through sacrifices and prayer, this is kind of God's plan to bring the world back together. You know, he, out of the nations, he called Abraham and from Abraham, he made his own people group, right? Those are going to be his people, his chosen people. And they were going to be a, a nation of priests, a light to the Gentiles, right? And they were going to be a blessing to the nations. All right. So we went through Moses. Moses is the beginning, 
you know, before they enter in the promised land, we hear, we hear God's character. That's something that's going to be debated and discussed and torn apart and just dissected throughout the rest of scripture. And then we get to Elijah near the end. So there are ways in which, you know, Jonah and Elijah are being paired up together. Now, the first clue would have been, you know, again, and Jonah, and my trusty NIV, uh, in chapter four, verse three, now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And he's going to ask God that twice, just let me die. And we know someone else who also did that, and that's Elijah, who actually asked God exactly two times, right? So that should be like, you know, the obvious way that Jonah and Elijah are connected. Uh, but there are other clues in the text as well. And that we're going to go, we're going to go through them a little bit. So Elijah flees from Jezebel after defeating the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. So he has this tremendous victory. He calls in fire from heaven, right? And he executes all these prophets of Baal. It's like, yay, you know, God, it seems like everything is on the upward trajectory again. But then Jezebel says, may God deal with me ever so severely if I do not make you like one of them by, you know, the end of tomorrow or something like that. And that freaks him out and he runs. He flees from Jezebel after defeating the prophet of prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Jonah flees from God's call to go to Nineveh. So it's kind of, we have two fleeing prophets here. You know, Elijah walks one day into the wilderness. Jonah walks one day into Nineveh and, you know, chapter three, verses four. And jo then Jonah goes east of Nineveh. Elijah went east. Elijah asked for his life to die, as we've already said. And now, Yahweh, please take my life from me, for good is my death more than my life. And he asked for his life to die. So they both ask to die. And then again. It says, Elijah, and he lay down, and he's sleepy, and look, an angel touching him, and he said, arise, eat, right? So Elijah's there on the mountain of the Lord. He's sleeping, right? And an angel comes and touches him and says, arise, eat. And Jonah's sleeping in the belly of the ship, in the depths of the ship. The captain, right, comes and wakes him up, says, arise, call on your God. So this is very similar kind of language here. Elijah journeys 40 days to Mount Horeb, right? Jonah announces 40 days until Nineveh's destruction. God asks Elijah two times why he has come to Mount Horeb. God asks two times to, of Jonah if it is good that Jonah is angry at his mercy. Elijah gives the same exaggerated self-pitying answer two times. I'm all alone. I'm all alone. I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm no better than my ancestors. That's another one that we're not really going to get into today. That's a great, great one to follow. Uh, giving you clues for your own journey into uh, either the book of Jonah or the story of Elijah. Jonah gives the same pathetic and selfish answer two times as well. Yes, I am angry enough to die at your compassion. God communicates with Elijah through symbolic natural phenomena, wind, earthquakes, lightning, right? 
God communicates with Jonah through symbolic natural phenomena as well. There's the plant, right? At the end that gives him that shade. Uh, there's the worm, there's the fish, there's the wind, there's the storm. So it's similar natural phenomena that God is trying to get Jonah's attention. God counters Elijah's self-pity. You are not the only faithful Israelite. I have 7,000 others. You know, and God counters Jonah's self-pity. You had pity on this plant, right? Jonah was so psyched about that plant. And then when that plant died, he was so hopping angry, right? He was so angry. He was so distressed. He wanted to die all over again. Um, you know, God counters Jonah's self-pity. You had pity on this plant. Shouldn't you have pity on this great people? Look, we're not just talking about a bush here or trees or a plant. We're talking about people and their animals. Uh, you know, shouldn't you have pity on them? Shouldn't you be compassionate with them? And he's like, no, no, just kill me. I, I, I don't want to live in a world where you're this compassionate and you're this gracious. No, kill me. In a way, you know, Elijah is like the upside down prophet. When you hold these two prophets, these two great prophets, right? Moses, Moses and Elijah. When you hold up these two great prophets side by side, you notice some stuff. You know, Moses is on the mount, mountain of the Lord, Sinai. He's God's prophet. He wants to die for the people. The people have sinned and he offers himself as an atonement, as a sacrifice. You know, if you want blood, God, take me, right? God says, no, thank you. Elijah on the mountain of the Lord, Mount Horeb, same place. Uh, God's prophet, right? He wants to die to get away from the people. He's like, I'm no better than my ancestors. Just kill me. I can't do this anymore, right? So in, in a sense, Elijah almost becomes like this upside down prophet. And it, there's this sense there that hanging in the air that God was waiting for someone like Moses, right? We talked about this when we, we first started going through the book of Jonah, that there are these clues, these editorial clues that, you know, never in Israel has there arisen a prophet like Moses. There's this idea that we've been waiting for someone like Moses to offer prayers and intercession on behalf of the people. And we get Elijah who does none of that. And instead of offering himself, instead of praying, he just, he's just like, kill me. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Right? So we have this long line of people who, you know, are interceding uh, from, you know, Noah in a sense, all the way to Ahab's generation. You know, Elijah brought a drought, which is another clue. It's like an anti-flood. It's like, okay, I promised. I'm not going to destroy you again uh, with water. You know what? I'm going to destroy you with no water. Ah, take that, right? Um, there are some clues that God wasn't totally on board with the flood either. Not, not the flood, the drought either. That a lot, this was something that maybe Elijah asked for and God gave it to him. So instead of praying for the people, uh, he prayed to punish the people, right? Um, so there's this idea of like, if you, if you think about this interplay between two prophets, the prophet at the beginning, which is kind of held up as the ideal and the prophet at the end, which even though he called people to repentance, there were a lot of great things that, about Elijah, but in the end, both of these great prophets would fail the test. 
And Elijah would fail the test through not offering himself for the people, not really praying for the people, but being so consumed by himself, so consumed by his own sense that I am all alone. No one can help me. Just kill me. This is pointless. Why are you doing this? You know, these are the quite big questions that the, that the Bible gets us into. And you have to ask yourself, this is another picture of the maze that I was showing you guys before. This is kind of from higher up. So you can kind of get the sense of the whole thing. Uh, I believe this is a, this is a maze in Italy. It's, I think it's one of the biggest in the world. And it has these little bridges that you can kind of like get up onto. So you can kind of look around and it has like this big like gazebo like thing in the center um, that we're looking at here. Uh, so you have to ask, okay. So here are some textual clues that the author deliberately put in, right? We have a throwback to Moses. We have a throwback to Elijah. We discuss some of their story. And even from a superficial point of view, you have to ask yourself, how does this change our understanding of the book of Jonah? Does it change it at all? And I think it does. I think it changes everything. You know, this isn't a mere morality tale about why we shouldn't run from God. This isn't something to bring out, you know, to teach children that you should obey your parents because that's what God would want, right? And you retell the story of Jonah of a bunch of little vegetables. Um, you know, this isn't a, a story where you preach in front of a congregation when you're trying to get them to do something or you feel like they're not doing something, right? And now we're going to talk about it. You know, you don't want to end up running away from God. Look about what happened to, to God. This is not a mere morality tale. This is a commentary on the entire Jewish story. This is why most scholars lean towards the fact that this is a, a later creation. This is a story that happened very, very late, you know, because it seems like most of the, uh, the rest of the Hebrew Bible has already been written, you know, and, you know, this is one of the prophets that Jesus refers to as well. You know, no sign will be given for this adulterous age, only the sign of Jonah, you know? And there's an idea of like, you know, three, three days, three nights, Jesus was, you know, dead in the ground, three days, three nights, although the math doesn't quite work out. That's the general idea, right? But I, there's something different, not something different, something deeper I think is going on here too. The sign of Jonah, what was the sign of Jonah? You know, the people of Israel, at least according to the story that's kind of laid out for us uh, in uh, the Tanakh, right? They kind of completely missed a point of their calling and their election. Yes, they were the chosen people. Yes, they were elect. They were selected by God, right? They were blessed by God. But it was never supposed to be just about them. It was supposed to be about resolving the problem at the beginning of the story. See, if we don't have Genesis 1 through 11, yeah. You know, you could say it was about Israel being slaves in Egypt and God came and rescued them and they became his people. But when you know the whole story, it's deeper than that. There's something deeper going on here. Israel is God's solution to what Genesis 1 through 11. How am I going to put this all back together? I'm going to choose a people. I'm going to choose a group. And through them, I'm going to bless the world. Through them, they're going to be a nation of priests. You know, this is about God bringing humanity back together. It's about reuniting heaven and earth. It was never supposed to be about 
who is a part of the chosen people and who is not. It was never about who was in the club and who was out of the club. It was out, it was about being a blessing to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, and a nation of priests. And Jonah was having none of it. None of it. When it came to God's compassion, right? What God said about himself way back in Exodus, which is rehashed and debated throughout scripture when we finally get to Jonah, Jonah runs the other way. If that's what being a chosen person of God means, I don't want anything of it. Kill me. I'm angry enough to die. I do not want to live to see your blessing pass to the nations. No, it's supposed to be about us. It's supposed to be about the chosen people. They want to become Jews? Fine. They can be part of the promise. But these Ninevites, these Assyrians, these Babylonians, no, not these pagan nations. They're not your people, God. Don't forgive them. Don't include them in your story. To me, this makes the book of Jonah extremely re relevant for Christianity today. Indeed. The reason why we just, you know, after we go through this, you know, let's start that again. This makes the book of Jonah extremely relevant for Christians today, you know, and I don't think this is something that would immediately jump out to most Christians as they go through the book of Jonah. It might be entertaining, might be like whatever, uh, might be a little frustrating when you get to chapter four. Um, but the reason this doesn't jump out at most Christians is because most of us are biblically illiterate. And I think that's, that's something that we just need to accept and we need to own and just, just all it takes is reading it, reading a lot of it. Uh, to someone who's been through the Bible, you know, I even think a few times, I think when you get to the book of Jonah, you know, if you're reading it well, will make you remember these stories. Wow, that's, that's like Elijah. I wonder if anything's there. Wow, that's similar to what, you know, God told Moses and it's rehashed here, it's talked about here, it's talked about there. Huh. You know, or even a good Bible commentary and there's lots of them out there. You know, you walk into any any church on any given Sunday, you listen to any average conversation between Christians. Uh, you know, you can even see it the way we talk about Christians and non-Christians in our fellowship. Most people confuse the plan of salvation with the gospel. And I'm here to tell you that they're, they're not the same thing. I know we think of them the same thing. I think, you know, if, if I was there at your church and we had a conversation, it was like, okay, someone summarized the gospel for me. You know, you might say something along the line, well, Jesus died for our sins. And so we can go to heaven or, you know, that we can be saved, uh, you know, or so that we can escape, we can escape hell, you know, and we've already made our, our position clear with heaven and hell, heaven and earth in our heaven and earth series. Uh, we've also made some things clear in the gospels in our gospel series. Um, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news, right? That Jesus has fulfilled Israel's story. <laughs> and that, that gospel message is what rocked the ancient world, right? It wasn't like, you know, okay, your sins are now forgiven. P people had no idea what that meant. You know, you try and say that to someone today who doesn't have a Christian religious upbringing, uh, you know, and they'll look at you like, you, what, what do you, what do you mean, my sins? I'm, I'm great. I'm awesome. 
you know uh, most people you know they're the stars in their own story stars in their own movie we all you know we all love ourselves you know hopefully you know to a certain extent uh, but the gospel message itself is compelling when you really get down to it god's plan to bring the world back together when you go through the entire story of israel from genesis 1 to you know depending on how your bible's ordered to the last chapter of malachi or the last chapter of chronicles and you get to the end and then jesus comes onto this scene jesus is the good news not necessarily forgiving your sins but for fulfilling, completing Israel's story, which then leads to salvation. You know, and this is this is a critical difference. I think most most of us have never ever heard the gospel, or we're not familiar enough with the gospel as we should be. We think about the results, the plan of salvation, and whatever your tradition says that is, and we forget about the gospel the gospel is the story and the gospel itself is compelling you know so this is something that you know we have to think about as we go into this how are we contributing this is a story when god when jesus fulfills israel's story right the gospel uh that's carried forward uh it kind of ends the same way the book of jonah ends with a question what about us and i really want us to take a second here and think no no really really what, what about us am i like jonah am i more concerned with who's in and who's out who's the chosen people of god and who's not who we're supposed to have forgiveness and compassion for and who we're not you know who's going to be blessed and who's going to be cursed for us is it who's going to heaven and who's going to hell for us, is it, you know, who's saved and who's not saved? Is that the gospel? Because that's not the gospel. The gospel invites us into a story of a God where there's always hope. Of a God where there's always a way to deal with sin. There's always a way to bring this mess of a world somehow together again. And there'll be blessing for all of us as one of my favorite theologians likes to say rob bell if the good news isn't good news for everybody it's good news for nobody and for us for me the book of jonah is now more relevant than ever because i feel like so much of christianity has been fractured over these lines of who's in the club and who's out of the club who's the true church and who's not the true church Who's saved? Who's not saved? Who's going to heaven? Who's going to hell? As we've talked about before, especially in our Heaven and Earth series, the Bible is just so much more, so much more than that. So as we leave behind the book of Jonah, so we're leaving behind our narrative example, a little short trip into narrative, we should be leaving ourselves with the same question we might have had leaving the book of Jonah. Who are we going to be? Who are we going to be? Are we going to be people who are, if this is what God wants, I want nothing to do it, do with it. Or are we going to be the people of God who through kindness, love, compassion, grace, 
we help bring the world back together. And that ends out for us, the book of Jonah. Okay. That finishes up narrative. Hopefully you've enjoyed the short field trip. I know I have. Uh, believe me, it could have been much, much longer. We just barely scratched the surface of the surface of everything we can do with the book of Jonah, but that's okay. Uh, next, we're going to be moving on to poetry, and we're going to be looking at some of the Psalms. So poetry takes up about 33% of the Bible. Not all of it is in the Psalms, although the Psalms are the biggest chunk of it. A lot of times, you know, poetry is couched with a narrative, uh, things that come to mind right away are, you know, like the song of Moses, the song of Miriam, uh, a lot of the prophets, although there's narrative there, there's like pages and pages and pages of poetry as well. A lot of the prophetic texts or prophecy of the prophets is in poetry form, um, but we're going to be diving into the Psalms. We're going to be looking about at that. It's our next big chunk of the Bible, and uh, so we'll be back next week. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe our, to our channel. It helps people find us. If you're listening to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your podcaster of choice is, please leave us a rating and review that helps people find us. And I will be looking forward to seeing you next time. Adios, muchachas. Patty? And muchachos. <laughs>